Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, as every week, but one, I am your host, Adam Lauder, and today we have with us another great guest. Of course, I'm talking about Rebecca Grant. You probably have read her articles. You probably know her from her. She's been on television. She's one of the leading air power analysts in the country. And uh, she, she, you know, I'll be honest with you. I've always enjoyed her, her work and I'm glad to have known her for many years. And today we're going to do something that we've, we've, sort of touched on a little bit, but haven't done much of, and that's talk about integrated deterrence. And then, of course, if we've still got time after that, we're going to talk about the continued role of stealth. With that, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Adam, it's great to be talking with you. We have known each other a long time, and I always enjoy our conversations. I know we've, you know, it's sort of, you know, you write, I write, we both sort of have advocated for what we think are important air power issues over the last 20 years. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder how successful I've ever been at convincing both Congress and different administrations in the, for me, mostly focused on nuclear weapons, the utility of those weapons and the systems that we need and the policies that we need. And, but, you know, I think you've had more success because your work has often, you know, as you follow it, led to the types of systems you've advocated. So congratulations to you for being more successful than I often have been. Hey, I don't know if I accept that because <laughs> like you, Adam, uh, we've been advocating these issues, trying to keep them in the public conversation and trying to highlight particular requirements for the Department of Defense. But like you, I look around at the challenges in the world today and the state of the force structure, and I'm just chilled to the bone by what we are facing and what we've got. So many great technology opportunities and, of course, a fantastic force of men and women doing their best but there are enormous challenges out there, I think maybe far beyond what you and I would have talked about even five or 10 years ago. Yeah, it does seem that we're, I, you know, just in my career, so my career started in 1993. And so in that 30-year period, I can't think of a time where we've been facing a period looking forward that's more challenging than the one we're facing in the years ahead. And if you, you know, take the Air Force in particular, I'm not sure how the Air Force gets to where it needs to be in order to effectively deter, uh, you know, this axis of Russia, China, North Korea. You're right. And you and I came into this field um, as the Air Force was riding the wave 
of new procurements in the 1980s and the Reagan buildup. And then, of course, of the stunning success of air powered leading and dominating the joint campaign in Operation Desert Storm, plus debuting the new technologies of stealth and precision. And then for a long time, the task focused on counterterrorism. And then, then it started slowly, slowly. And here we are today looking at a task that is now pretty clear, clearer than it was even three or four years ago. And the number one thing that has changed out there, to my mind, is the Russia-China military alliance. Even a few years ago, there were skeptics, but I think what as we see China's wholehearted support of uh, Russia in its illegal invasion of Ukraine now running into the second year, there is no doubt that this really is, as Xi Jinping says, an alliance with no limits. And that means that our concept of integrated deterrence has to step up. Um, you and I, when we talk about integrated deterrence, I got to tell you, I don't like the term integrated <laughs> deterrence. You know, it just doesn't have that snappy sell. It's, you know, it's not like a containment or massive retaliation, you know, just from a phraseology standpoint. I don't think integrated deterrence quite gives us the sense of urgency or really portrays what they're trying to get at. And that is the rock bottom fact that deterrence is now not just about ICBMs in silos, bombers that have weapons and can be made ready pretty quickly. And of course, the submarine leg. For so many decades, we said, hey, we've got the ICBMs, we've got the bomber leg, we've got the submarine leg, we're good to go, we've got deterrence. And that was true, even as we looked at the fluctuating warhead levels and came down through the positive impacts of arms control and the end of the Cold War. Well, today, making deterrence credible requires more than just the three legs of the triad. And honestly, I think this is what the Department of Defense and the Pentagon is trying to get at. You've really got to add in the nuclear command and control. Yes, that was always there. But now you have to add in your ability to dominate in space and secure cyberspace um, capabilities and communications. And then let's put on top of that one more thing, which is the use of artificial intelligence to enhance the credibility of the deterrent platforms that we do have. And why? Because now we are not just facing Russia. We are facing also China on its march to increase its nuclear weapons. And frankly, North Korea, which says they want to try it as well. And Iran, who knows what's going on. So keeping that deterrence credible now requires a lot more. And so I just think integrated deterrence doesn't quite give you enough of the keywords that are essential to our nuclear force posture. Well, so my question, though, is, and this is one I've not heard the administration really address. And, you know, we're going to use a whole of government. We're going to it's not just about nuclear weapons and kinetic military power. And I'm sort of like, well, you've used sanctions on Iran for decades. You, you've sanctions. That's an economic tool. We've been doing that. Diplomacy. You know, we've tried to rally the international community against the war in Ukraine. I mean, 
what are you going to do that's something you haven't that you know past administrations haven't been doing already i mean we've led from behind you know we've relied on our allies and partners so what tool do you now administration have that we've not already been using for decades that'll make this integrated deterrence more effective that's the question i don't mm -hmm. know that's a great question, Adam, and I think you can look at it in two ways. One, with policy, as you just reviewed, and then also with the, the technologies to make this thing effective. What more can you do with integrated deterrence? Well, I think it's a little bit about bringing back something that was very central in the Cold War, and that is extended deterrence. So, if integrated deterrence, boy, that's a really big tent, right? You can put a lot of things in that tent. If one of those pieces of integrated deterrence is extended deterrence, then great, I'm all for it. And that's, you know, the um, conducting additional nuclear command and control exercises with South Korea on the peninsula. It's that rock solid commitment to extended deterrence for NATO partners. And I'm, I'd like to see more emphasis and more public emphasis on extended deterrence. To me, it's a little different from integrated deterrence. Extended deterrence has a great um, meaning that's well understood and a diplomatic history. So that's a policy piece I'd like to see emphasized. As for what else integrated deterrence is going to do, I think it really does come down to those key areas, NC3 modernization, artificial intelligence, and making sure you've got cyberspace and space all good to go. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you said space, cyberspace, NC3. You know, NC3 is moving to a digital, and Stratcom is having challenges with this. Like, what should, what should NC3 of the future look like? That's something they, you know, they're sort of they're behind on. Uh, that's proving very difficult. Cyber is one where we don't have where our relative advantage, like in air, in, in airspace, you know, aerospace power, we've got a really strong advantage. That's probably the area where we have the strongest advantage. Cyber, less so. Space, you know, we've, we've chosen not to build an advantage. So I wonder, you know, how do we go about, in, in AI, you know, we're sort of in this back and forth race with the Chinese, the Russians, you know, sort of aren't trying to 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 really play that race. You know, they're not pushing to be uh, a leader like the Chinese are. So I I wonder when we're when we don't have distinct advantages in those areas, like we have in you know in you know naval power. I mean, we have a, a global advantage, but maybe in a regional fight with the Chinese our advantages diminish just because of numbers. But I, I wonder how do you, what, what would you suggest we do to use those capabilities to build that advantage? How do we actually build that advantage? And again, a, a really great point because in the last couple of decades, we've been used to having a lot of conventional overmatch. And as you correctly point out, we don't have necessarily, I like to think we're ahead, but we don't have that commanding lead 
in space or in AI in the way that we had a, a commanding lead in air power over the Iraqi Air Force in 2003, for example. But let's remember, this is not so very different from the situation in the 1950s where deterrence really was built on um, on, on a much narrower you know, level of parity, right, as the Soviet Union of the day under Khrushchev and all the you know, the Berlin crises of the 1950s sought to catch up and expand. So we're a little bit like that now where we are trying to establish deterrence in some new areas like space, but without a commanding lead that would basically, you know, be what you might want to call unipolar deterrence, you know, one power so strong, no one can do anything really to mess things up. Well, we know China's got plenty of ways to mess things up in space from ground-based laser weapons to bumping stuff around on orbit and all the other mischief that they can achieve. So we're looking to understand how do we build a concept of space deterrence, essentially. What I think makes it tough is, is the difficulty of understanding the Chinese military mind. Um, an, an, an often overlooked feature of the early Cold War was that our leaders at the time, and I think of Eisenhower primarily, but others too, they had a pretty darn good understanding of the Russian mindset in the day. And I think that helped them to build a decent concept of deterrence. We are striving to find those things that will deter China and get them to realize that, hey, you can't knock other people's satellites down on orbit. You know, it's, you can't lie about your climate goals. You know, they really, it's, it's really difficult. This, you know, China, no social contract, right? So it's hard to know what to do to deter them. But now that I've steered off into policy and the theories of deterrence for a while, you know, I think one of the things that, that integrated deterrence is trying to get at is to build up and use our advantage in artificial intelligence. And while China may be great at putting together generative AI models and all those things, let's remember China has zero recent combat experience except for their little clash with India. That means that the U.S. and our allies, um, most of whom have fought in combat operations in the wars on terror and various things, we've done a lot of exercises. That means that the U.S. has a better tactical ability to begin to use AI as an offsetting advantage. And I, I do think that's what policymakers are trying to get at when they talk about integrated deterrence. But frankly, it just I think it just misses the mark. It's not the right not the right phrase yet. It just doesn't hit the nail on the head for me. Yeah, I, I guess part of my concern is is I look at what I read you know, the open source material that's talking about JADC2, for example, and that it's going to be sort of this plug and play and it's, you know, it's going to allow you to, you know, modularize what capabilities platforms have, you know, it'll be a digital infrastructure. And, and as I look at all that and I wonder how secure is it? And then I, you know, for me as, if I'm the Russians or the Chinese, the way I fight the Americans is before any shooting starts, 
I, you know, I'm in their networks. You know, the first place I'm going to go is Transcom. And then whenever I need to jack up Transcom's networks before any conflict, that's what I start with. And then I want to make the Americans, you know, deaf and blind. And I wonder how effective, and this is one I'm not really sure about. I'm not sure if I have a good grip on exactly where we are, on how effective we are at preventing that from happening, particularly given the hacks that we regularly hear about, you know, the joint staff, OPM, you know, there's been a lot of them. And so I wonder, can we, you know, even if we want to fight the way you're describing, are the Russians and the Chinese going to going to stop us from doing that because we haven't protected our networks and we haven't kept them out when it comes time to employ all this this capability? Well, exactly. What if all our data is bad or corrupted or not authentic and maybe we don't even know it? So here we are basically saying we're going to compensate for our geographic disadvantages and our older force structure with super duper data for commanders. Okay. That's really what it is. It's super duper data. So that, you know, one of the, one of the examples they love to give is say you've got, um, El Razum, you know, the long-range anti-ship missile. If you have the perfect intelligence and you know what that enemy Navy ship is doing and where it's sailing and how fast it's going, well, you can just fire two El Razums at that ship in a time of conflict rather than four. And that means you have double the arsenal. And you're thinking, that's yeah. great. That's a wonderful capability. But if, if that's what we're going to use to, and we are, make no mistake, we, that is what we are using AI for, is to uh, give us advantages that we don't have anymore through mass and, and, and location, right? What if the data is bad? What if, you know, you go to look for the, you, want, you ask the AI to say, hey, where's the enemy ship? And it goes, oh, it's in Connecticut. I mean, you just, if the data is corrupted, then you really don't have anything. So like you, I always get a little bit nervous when I, well, everything about Chad C2 makes me nervous because it sounds <laughs> great and we need it, but I'm never, I'm never completely sure <laughs> that this is the right thing. It's like, you know, you go to the hair salon and they say, oh, this cut would look great on you. And you're like, I hope it does, but I'm a little nerd. My gut says I'm not sure. Right. Same with yeah. Jad C2. Okay. And our gut says we're not sure because we know how important that is. I think, you know, obviously a lot of this is in a realm that's classified and we're not going to really know how good we are or aren't. But I too am, am nervous about, do we really have this all squared away? And you're absolutely right. The first part is, is the data good? And then the second part is, can we manage the data, throw out the stuff we don't want, select the the nuggets and the treasures from the pile of data and get it into that operational commander's hands or down to the tactical edge quickly enough to make the difference that we're all counting on. And, you know, that's why um, that in, in a way back to my bugbear with integrated deterrence, that's why that kind of highfalutin phrase really bothers me because it does come down to the nuts and bolts of can you get this data to the tactical edge? And I'd like to see our language and terminology evolve a little bit more so that people like you and I could be, would know whether we should be worried or confident, which one. Yeah. Well, it's that time of show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Rebecca Grant and we'll be right back. 
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back, and we were talking before the break about integrated deterrence, but I, I want to switch to another topic. So, you know, I live near Whiteman, and I'll, I'll be down there next weekend. And I, you know, the, the B2 is a phenomenal aircraft that has done, you know, it's scared adversaries for several decades now. And, you know, we'll be getting the B21 soon. And, you know, I remember in 2013, I wrote a, a big article that on the, you know, is stealth still relevant? So that was a decade ago. Here we are about to start building and fielding a new stealth platform. And then, you know, it'll play a critical role in, you know, any potential fight with the, the Chinese. And so I'll pose the question to you, is stealth still relevant and why? Oh, Adam, you know, I'm going to say <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm the stealth lady. Like you, I'm a big fan of the B-2 bomber from way back. I remember the rollout uh, and I was, wasn't in the field yet. I was still in school and it was the funniest looking thing. And I remember um, I have some terrific memories of getting, of seeing um, B-2s flying around Whiteman of seeing B2s on the uh, factory line in for mods and things. And of course, I am incredibly fortunate that I got actually got to fly in a B2 from Whiteman, um, which was just the most incredible I've never experience. done that. That's and awesome. So grateful. Yeah, it was quite amazing. So, but I think the question is a fair one because here is, again, a key technology that we're counting on, we've invested in. And my, my first response is still still relevant. Well, does the enemy still use radars to detect things? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, you know, like, look, think about Ukraine and the debates about what air power could or couldn't do. The center point of that debate was always the Russian S-400 and their missile systems and their integrated air defense system. Well, hey, that's the exact integrated air defense system that analysts and engineers decades ago realized was going to be a big problem, right? And why we went and developed stealth. Um, no question to me, stealth is relevant in the B-2 and the B-21, of course, in the F-35. And I would say in the F-22 as well, my, my, my favorite among the fighters. I wish we had more stealth aircraft. I would say, though, that, um, you know, there's some things that were true in the past and remain true. Even the B-2 was it was not like it's going to be only stealth and nothing else, right? There's stealth in the design, of course. There are tactics. Electronic warfare has always been part of the stealth toolkit, particularly in the early days. No one was either allowed to or wanted to talk much about how electronic warfare and stealth go together. But what's the basic fact, right? You've got a stealthy aircraft, you're going to be able to get that one in quite a lot closer. So anything you do that combines stealth and electronic warfare is, is very, very, very effective, right? Add, that, add to that then something that I think the early proponents of stealth maybe didn't envision, and that is the tremendous availability of battlefield data, 
within the net while stealth aircraft are in flight. You know, we saw that happen in 1999 in the in the Kosovo air war when B-2 bombers were retargeted en route via um, a SATCOM link, right? But that ability has just has expanded a lot. So, you know, now all our combat aircraft and anybody in the threat zone really counts on having um, really fresh and updated data about threats in the area and also about targets or air mobility command and about landing strips and things like that. So there's a lot that is enhanced stealth. And to me, stealth has become now not just something that some planes have that's real great, but an entering argument. So we don't see anything that's not designed with stealth in mind. Now, having said that, I think the Air Force is really on the edge of, a, of an enormous change. And of course, that involves the use of unmanned vehicles and our CCAs, whatever they're going to be called in the future. We're going to have a lot of unmanned wingmen out there doing a lot of things. And I think you know that's a relevant question is how does stealth work within what's going to be a few years from now, I think a very, very different looking air component from what we've seen in the past. So is NGAD, because that's, you know, as far as I still understand, that's what's coming next. Is that still the the platform of, you know, platform next generation or has that changed? And are we going to, you know, is there a timeline for when we might expect these unmanned platforms flying as an F-35's wingman? To, you know, where are we right now with all of that? Right. And my guess on, um, again, excellent, excellent point that opens up the discussion. When are we going to see, uh, you know, like, when are we going to see the F-35 make a pass over the air show with all its unmanned wingmen? Great, because that's yeah. what you do, right? What, what air show does that take place? And then when does that become the norm in planning and the uh, mission planning within the air component for joint operations? So I'd say probably sooner than we think. Um, and, uh, you know, I would expect that that is now at a place where there's some experimentation going on, not only with the systems themselves, but also with how you combine a manned crewed aircraft with the unmanned aircraft. I bet a lot of this is being done via simulation as well. And we have probably some incredibly smart young men and women who are not only learning that trade, but bringing some new ideas to it as well. But remember, you know, one of the great advantages of these smaller um, combat air vehicles that are unmanned is, you know what, they're stealthy. Okay. So it's not like they suddenly abandoned stealth. It's just become something that now we want to see really in every platform to incorporate as much stealth as it possibly can while remaining true to its central mission. So that's why you get a bomber like the the B2 or the the beautiful, you know, smaller, more more avian, more bird-like B21, but stealth 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 all the way, right? Same I think with the with the unmanned combat aircraft and of course, I would expect your next generation fighter whether that's Air Force variant, Navy 6th gen to be very stealthy as well. You simply can't do anything else at this point. And what's great is that now stealth has evolved to the point that you're not paying a, a combat mission penalty for that stealth. As maybe one did a little bit in, let's say, the F-117, which did incredible combat missions, but had to give up, you know, some things along the way um, 
pretty much all of those hurdles have been overcome long since. And so we see that you know, stealth is just the entering argument for the development of aircraft. So whenever we do see the F-35 and its unmanned wingman going by at the air, so I bet those unmanned craft are going to look pretty darn stealthy and have the ability to do what stealth does, which is to take the enemy's defensive systems and turn them back to our advantage. Now, we are at that point in the show where I like to bring out my genie, Bob. So as I rub my lamp and genie Bob comes out, he grants all guests three wishes related to the topics we've been discussing. That's the, that's his criteria is related to our, our current topics. So Bob, he said, yes, Rebecca, you've got three wishes. Oh, what is, three wishes. <laughs> what is, of course wish, my fr- <laughs> what's wish number one? <laughs> You know, wish number one always has to be asking for unlimited more wishes, right? <laughs> okay, I figured that's, I'll set you ground rules that way. I only get to articulate three wishes. I think wish number one related to deterrence and our national security is going to be for a very strong, capable commander-in-chief for the next several presidential cycles. Hey, folks, you know, whether you're Democrats, Republicans, Independents, what have you, we really need a strong commander-in-chief. And a strong commander-in-chief, like President Eisenhower was in the 1950s, is has deterrence value all in themselves, okay? Yeah. So that's my first wish. I think my second wish is for um, super progress and understanding of the role that AI plays in our warfighting concepts. You can see it, Adam, as you mentioned, depending more and more, we're expecting more and more out of AI. So I want to see that work out and I want to see it be clear as to what we are and aren't getting from AI. And my third wish, 500 B-21s. <laughs> if we had 500 B-21s, I think we could deter <laughs> the Chinese from a, an attack on Taiwan. I, I think that would do the trick. Yeah. So now if if as we sort of wrap this up and you want to leave a message for the listeners, you know, sort of their takeaway, what would that takeaway message be? Remember Americans need to invest in national security and that's going to include some long-term investment in our nuclear deterrent. The last thing you want America is old outdated nuclear weapons since Russia and China have decided we're going to have a nuclear competition for the foreseeable future, we need to modernize our nuclear deterrent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Rebecca Grant, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Thank you, Adam. And, and is there a place we can, our listeners can find your writings on a regular basis? Yes, uh, look for me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Rebecca Grant DC. And I also write for foxnews.com opinion. All right. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. I guess the first thing I would say is Rebecca's really polished. She was perfect. It, it was She was really made it easy for me to, to interview her. And it was good to talk about integrated deterrence, get her perspective. You know, if, if you do listen to you know, a lot of the Nuclecast episodes, 
I'm pretty skeptical of it. I, I, I've yet to really understand how it's any different than anything we've always done. Uh, that, that has not been made clear to me. And it's also, it was good to talk about stealth again, because I haven't really thought about stealth much, you know, in five or 10 years, you know, the last big time whenever stealth came into question and its relevance and all that, you know, sort of during the, the, the heyday of F-35 being expensive. That's when, you know, people wondered if it was still relevant, but here we are about to fill the B-21 and, you know, hopefully it'll be a highly successful bomber. We need that. Uh, so it was good to talk to Rebecca. I hadn't seen her in a while. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chimington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumple. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at 